Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Catholic Truth Podcast, where we teach and preach the Catholic faith, which comes down to us over 2,000 years from Jesus and the apostles. We want to help you to know your faith, to love your faith, and to live your faith with purpose and passion. And sometimes, as you know, on this show, we have guests who are experts in their field or who are converts to the faith or who have written a book uh, and have share or share their conversion story, really. And so today we would like to welcome back to our show, Carlo Broussard, who is a full-time uh, Catholic Answers apologist. And uh, he also gives talks around the country. He's a speaker. He's an author. He talks on apologetics, Bible studies. He has degrees in theology and philosophy. And he's written countless articles in many books, including Meeting the Protestant Response, which is the book we interviewed on him last time. So if you want to uh, know how to answer Protestants, I mean, many Protestants give us, you know, replies, but how do you answer those replies? You know, you can check out his book here. And we also have a uh, video that I will link at the end of this video. So Carlo, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, Brian, thanks for having me, buddy. Yes, it's a pleasure. And I'm very excited to be talking about the dogmas of Mary. Very important topic and perhaps even a very controversial topic because many Protestants are quick to say that, you know, your dogmas are not biblical. In fact, just yesterday on our TikTok, you know, we said that, you know, the Catholic Church doesn't accept the Bible alone, not because we don't love the Bible, but because the Bible alone is unbiblical, you know, and our our, mm. our I guess our challenge to them was, if you do think it's biblical, you know, please show us. And instead of providing scriptures, they immediately just said, oh, well, the Catholic dogmas aren't, you know, uh, the Roman Catholic doctrines aren't biblical. The dogmas aren't biblical. Mary's not biblical. And they just go down these lists. And so right. today we're actually going to be talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary, the dogmas of Mary, and showing that not only are they biblical, but they're historical and they have good reasons for believing what we believe today as Catholics, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. And the four dogmas, first, I think it's important that we define what a dogma is. This is basically a teaching that the church has put forward as coming from the deposit of faith, whether sacred scripture or sacred tradition. So it's set forth in a definitive manner as divinely revealed. This is the highest level of church teaching. And so this is what we mean by dogma. And there are four of these Catholic teachings about Mary that we believe to be a part of divine revelation. One, Mary is the mother of God, also known as the Theotokos, the God-bearer. Mary as perpetual virgin, ever virgin. Mary as immaculately conceived. And Mary as bodily assumed. So these are the four teachings that we believe to be a part of divine revelation. The church has other teachings about the Blessed Mother that we might say are official, but not infallible. These are infallible teachings without error, but not just infallible, but a part of divine revelation. And so we assent to them based on the very word of God itself, as opposed to other infallible teachings that aren't put forward as being a part of divine revelation, but nevertheless infallible, and we assent to it based on the authority of the magisterium. And the list that you just mentioned is the exact order that I decided to talk about them in. So perfect. Awesome. Uh, All right. <laughs> so why don't we start with the the first dogma? Let's get right into it. Um, yeah. 
most Protestants don't understand how Mary could be the mother of God. And in fact, to right. many Protestants, it just seems insulting. How can God have a mother? Did she exist before the Trinity? Did she give birth right. to God Almighty? I mean, how could you Catholics even assert that? So obviously, that's not our teaching. So what is the teaching of the Catholic Church on this? Yeah, so in affirming that Mary is the mother of God, what we're affirming is that Mary gave birth to a person, and that person is divine. So a mother is one who bears a child, right? One who gives birth to a child. And the subject of that birth, and the birth of Jesus, was the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who is equal to the Father and thus divine. We use the word God to refer to Jesus in the sense that he's equal to the Father with the divine nature. Since he, that person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, is one who was bored by, who was born of the Blessed Virgin Mary, we say that Mary is the mother of that person and thus the mother of God. So what we are not saying in affirming Mary as the mother of God is that Mary is equal to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in the divine nature. We're not saying that. In saying that Mary is the mother of God, we're not saying that Mary eternally existed with the three persons of the Blessed Trinity. We're not saying that Mary gave the divine nature to Jesus. We're simply affirming that the Son of God, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, was born of a woman, as St. Paul teaches us in his letter to the Galatians. And inasmuch as that woman is the one who gave birth to that person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity who's divine, we can say Mary is the mother of God. So that's at least what we mean when we say Mary is the mother of God. The Council of Ephesus in AD 431, uh, the formulation that the Council of Ephesus gave it was the Theotokos or the God-bearer, ripping off of St. Paul in his letter to Galatians saying that the Son of God was born of a woman. That woman, Mary, bore the son of the living God. And inasmuch as she gave birth to him, we can say she's his mother because mothers are women who give birth to persons. And that's what Mary did. She gave birth to the second person of the blessed Trinity. So she didn't just give birth to his human nature, as some people might say, but she gave birth to him as a whole person, both of his natures. How would, how would a Protestant understand that? Yeah. So Again, getting back to what is the definition of a mother, a mother is not one who gives birth simply to a nature. A mother is one who gives birth to a person who has a nature. For me, being born of my mother, I am a person, the subject of the birth, right? The one who was born, who has a human nature. My mother was not even responsible for one part of my human nature, naming my rational soul. She was responsible for the material element, at least part of the material element that would constitute my body. But yet she's still my mother because she gave birth to me as a person who has a human nature. The second person of the Blessed Trinity is a person who was born of Mary. That doesn't mean Mary's the source of his divine nature. It doesn't even mean, like in the case of my mother, that she's the source of of a part of his human nature, namely his rational soul. It simply means that she birthed a person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, who happens to be God. 
and thus we can affirm the title married the mother of god yeah very briefly i've i've told this to many protestants and surprisingly many of them get that they say you know what that actually makes sense but our concern is that it's confusing to people and uh sure. you know so why did the catholic church uh, come up with this term in the first place? What were the circumstances happening before the Council of Ephesus that the Catholic Church decided on this? Well, you had one by the name of Nestorius who was proposing that in Jesus, there were two persons, a human person and the divine person, and that Mary gave birth or was the mother of only the human person in Jesus. And this is known as the heresy of Nestorianism, which the Council Fathers at the Council of Ephesus condemned, because in affirming that Mary is the mother of God, the Theotokos, the God-bearer, we're at the same time wanting to affirm, the very purpose of affirming Mary is the mother of God is to affirm that in Jesus there is one person the divine person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity. And so in affirming Mary as mother of God, we're actually protecting the truth of the single personhood of Jesus, that he's one person, not two persons, one divine person, but with two natures. And because a person is the one who is birthed, and Mary gave birth to that person, the second person of the Blessed Trinity, we can say that Mary is the mother of the Son of God. She is the mother of the second person of the Blessed Trinity. Thank you very much for that explanation. Perfect. Um, let's move on to uh, the virgin birth. Uh, many Protestants, not all, it hasn't always been the, this way. You know, it hasn't always been the case with Protestants, especially with the Reformers, but modern day Protestants can't understand how Mary could be an ever virgin, especially yeah. when the Bible is so clear in English that. Mary had other brothers, Jesus had other brothers and sisters. And the Bible even goes on to name the brothers and sisters. So if the Bible is so clear that Jesus had brothers and sisters, then how can you Catholics keep going against the Bible and claim that she's still a virgin? Right. Well, uh, I deal uh, with this in my book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. This is not the book that you were advertising. This was my former book. I have a chapter on this. But the, the bottom line is that we cannot appeal to the use of the term brothers and conclude from that that Mary had other children, uh, children other than Jesus. And the reason is, is because the term brothers is more expansive. It has a wider semantic range than strict biological brotherhood. And there are a variety of scriptural example, examples to justify this. The Greek uh, version of the Hebrew scriptures in the Septuagint of Genesis 14 is a good example. Lot is Abraham's nephew, but yet Lot is referred to as Abraham's brother. And there are other examples even in the New Testament where brother is used in a way that's more expansive and wider than strict biological brotherhood. And since that is the case, Brian, one cannot conclude that Mary had other children simply based on the fact that the Bible speaks of Jesus as quote-unquote brothers. It could very well be that these individuals, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude, are related to Jesus in a way that goes beyond or is more than biological brotherhood, like some sort of cousin or kinship. And so that's how we could diffuse, at least diffuse, the challenge that appeals 
to the Bible's mention of Jesus's brothers. But then the question becomes, is there any positive evidence that Mary was a perpetual virgin? And this is where we in the Catholic tradition have proposed a couple of biblical texts that would support the perpetual virginity of Mary, one of being in Luke 134, when the angel Gabriel announces to Mary, you're going to conceive a child. And then she responds, how shall this be since I know not man? In other words, the implication is she has some kind of vow of perpetual virginity. She's not planning to have natural conjugal relations with Joseph from which normally comes children. Otherwise, why would she ask the question how she's going to conceive a child? So the plausible explanation of why she would even ask the question is that she has some sort of vow of perpetual virginity. And then also we appeal to the foot of the cross, Brian, where our Lord entrusts Mary into the care of John. If Jesus had biological brothers, he would have entrusted Mary into their care, not some outsider. Since Jesus did not trust Mary into their care, Jesus did not have biological brothers. So that would be a summary of that argument from John 19, 26 through 27. As I point out in my new book, Meeting the Protestant Response, and there are a variety of Protestant responses or counters to our use of those texts. Yeah, I always found it interesting that Mary asked that question, how shall this be since I don't know a man? And I feel like the angel's like, wait, you're not engaged? I mean, right here, you have a man, Mary. And I guess I'm going to have to tell you the birds and the bees since you don't seem to understand it. No, of right. course she understood it, but it's she had just taken a vow of virginity. And I think I think it's a very powerful case since it's pretty much unanimous among the early fathers down through the centuries and even among the reformers. I mean, this came out uh, a much later in the Christian history, didn't it? Yeah. And, and then, I mean, it's even more clear and poignant when we consider that Mary was not engaged to Joseph. Actually, Mary was married to Joseph. So she was betrothed, which means they were legally married. And so the likely time when Angel Gabriel comes to the Blessed Virgin is during the interim period between the professing of the vows and becoming legally married and the consummation of the marriage, which there would have been an interim period because normally the, the husband would go off to prepare a place for his bride, come back to his bride, take his bride to the home and consummate the marriage. So for Mary to ask the question, how am I going to conceive a child becomes even more perplexing when we consider that she was actually legally married to Joseph. If she were not legally married, why would Joseph be considering to divorce her? You can't be divorcing her if she's not his wife. So Matthew is very clear to for us that Mary is Joseph's wife, and that even underscores the perplexity of the question, how shall this be? And the only plausible explanation for that, again, is that she had some sort of vow to be a perpetual virgin, which Joseph consented to in marrying her. Let me uh, throw out one objection, if you don't mind. It's the one I hear the most um, from Protestants and non-Catholics and even Jehovah's Witnesses and such. And they say that how can Mary be a virgin, though, when the scriptures say that she did not know him? And uh, I just blanked out on the verse. Um, yeah. He didn't Matthew know her until. Exactly. Until. Yeah. And uh, presuming up until that point, he didn't. Uh, she didn't know him. But after that point, 
she did. So right. clearly to know in the Bible means to have relations with, and she didn't know him up to that point, but yeah. obviously she did after they would say. Yeah, this is Matthew one twenty five. Matthew records, uh, but Joseph knew her not until she had born a son and called his name Jesus. So I actually address this objection as well, Brian, in my other book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge. First of all, the word until doesn't necessarily mean or indicate a change in the future when a select period of time is complete, even within our own language, right? So I could say to you, Brian, until we talk again, God bless you. Does that mean that whenever we talk again, I no longer want God to bless you? Of course not. And we even see this in Scripture. The word until is used in a similar way, without any indication of change in the future, once a select period of time is complete. So in Deuteronomy 34, 6, it speaks of Moses' burial place, and it says, no man knows the place until this day. Does that mean at this day, now we know the burial place of Moses? The answer is no. In 2 Samuel 6, 23, it talks about Saul's daughter, Michal or Michal, however you wish to pronounce it, had no children until the day of her death. Does that mean after the day of her death, she had children? Of course not. And we can give plenty of other examples where the word until is used in a way to only emphasize a select period of time leading up to a point without any indication of a change after that point or in the future. So when we come to Matthew one twenty-five, yes, Matthew says Joseph did not know her until she bore a child. But remember, that word until could be used to indicate a change in the future, but it could also be used to only emphasize the select period of time without a change in the future. And given the context, so and, and just along on that point alone, a Protestant cannot appeal to the word until itself to show that Mary had other children. More evidence would have to be taken into consideration to determine how was Matthew using it. And whenever you look at the context, Brian, Matthew's whole point is not about what happens later after Jesus is born. The whole point is to emphasize that Jesus ended up in Mary's womb without the cooperation of Joseph. That's his point. So he's trying to emphasize the virginal conception. And, and so he's emphasizing only that select period of time without any indication of change in the future. And I think that's very interesting because even many, I've seen Protestant scholars who say, who admit actually that we can't know whether Mary was a virgin or not based on scripture alone because there's not enough information given. Uh, the Greek word adelphos could have a wide variety of familial relations or kinsmen, so we can't know for sure just on the text alone because it doesn't tell us how it's applied. And then with the word until, it doesn't tell. So it's really difficult to tell, which is why we need to look at history as well. So it's very interesting. Um, thank you. Yeah, I, and, I, I, yeah, I, I would, I would, I would say in response to that, I would say that these words "until" and "brothers" do not prove that Mary was not a virgin, and so it thus leaves open the question 
of whether Mary was a perpetual virgin. And that's where positive evidence would need to be used in order to show that Mary was a perpetual virgin. So I've already shared a couple of lines of positive evidence from Scripture, and then, of course, you could appeal to the witness of the early church fathers and mount a historical case to corroborate that biblical case. But that's sort of the structure of how the argument would go. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, And people, if you would like to know more information on this, I would push you toward his book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, and his second book, Meeting the Protestant Response. These will absolutely help you to know and defend your faith. Let's move on to the third one. This is perhaps the biggest objection for not only Protestants, but Jehovah's Witnesses and just non-Catholics in general. And that's how could the Catholic Church believe that Mary is sinless of all things. Only God is sinless, they say. So you are basically making Mary God. Why would you do that? And they say it completely contradicts scripture because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if all have sinned, that would absolutely include Mary, who's in the line of Adam, who's a sinner. So why does the Catholic Church hold and teach that Mary was in fact sinless? Yeah, with regard to the first challenge that to say Mary is sinless makes her out to be God because only God is sinless, well, then that wouldn't work for the souls in heaven, the blessed in heaven, because they're sinless, but they're not God. It is true that God is sinless by nature, but that doesn't mean non, uh, that doesn't mean creatures can't be sinless, uh, non infinite or finite rational creatures can't be sinless by grace. And that is the case for the blessed in heaven. They are sinless by grace in as much as they have sight of the the divine essence in the beatific vision. And even for the blessed virgin, who did not have the beatific vision, but nevertheless could be sinless in virtue of a special grace that God gives her, a grace that always at every moment of her existence is upholding her in the good actualizing her free will to always be in conformity with the divine will. How does God do that without violating freedom? That's a whole nother topic for a whole nother show and a whole nother question. But the point is, is that to affirm that Mary was sinless does not entail that she is divine. It doesn't entail that she is God. You can be sinless and not divine. Okay, as the blessed are in heaven and by a special grace. Now, with regard to the the scriptural uh, case for Mary's sinlessness, you posed an objection from Romans 3.23. All have fallen short of the glory of God. Now, we know that there are going to be exceptions to that general rule precisely because there are some human beings who and who are who are not subject to personal sin in Romans 3:23 Paul is talking about personal sin he talks about original sin in Romans 5 but in Romans 3:23 he's talking about personal sin and we know there's at least some exceptions to the general rule infants in the womb cannot personally sin and so they have not personally fallen short of the glory of God so they're an exception The severely mentally handicapped 
cannot personally sin because they don't have full use of reason and will due to their handicapped nature, due to their, their, their handicapped ailment. So they have not fallen short of the glory of God by way of personal sin. And so Brian, if, and, and by the way, with regard to the infants being exceptions, Roman is, Paul is very clear on this in Romans chapter nine, when he's talking about Esau and Jacob in the womb, not having committed any evil. And so Paul believes infants are exceptions to the general rule. So the argument is, if there are at least some exceptions to the general rule, then Brian, it's at least possible that Mary could be an exception to the general rule and not have personally fallen short of the glory of God. And given that there's at least a possibility, one cannot appeal to Romans 3.23 in such an absolute way that it, it necessarily includes Mary. So it's not a proof text against our belief that Mary was immaculately conceived, or in this case, even free from personal sin. So that's a way that we can diffuse the challenge. But I would argue, with regard to Mary's sinlessness, the key text is looking to Genesis 3.15 and the Proto-Evangelium, the first good news, where all Christians recognize that this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, Jesus, and the prophecy of how Jesus will redeem the human race by defeating the serpent, the devil. Genesis 3.15 talks about God says to the serpent, I will set enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, if all Christians recognize that that's a prophecy on the supernatural, there's a literal historical level where it's referencing Eve and her offspring. But all Christians recognize, even on a prophetical level, that that's a reference to Jesus and Satan. And if it's a reference to Jesus and Satan, then it must also be a reference to, the, to Mary, the mother of the Messiah. Now watch this, Brian. Notice how God says, he draws a parallel between the enmity that will exist between the devil and the seed of the woman, that is the Messiah, Jesus, and the enmity between the serpent and the woman, that is Mary. So if the enmity, the separation between the devil, the serpent, and Jesus, the seed of the woman, is complete and entire from the moment of Jesus being in the womb of the Blessed Virgin, and throughout the rest of his human existence, his human life, well then so too, the separation, the enmity between the devil, the serpent, and the woman, Mary, is going to be complete and entire, which means the woman, Mary, is going to be separated from the devil from the moment of her conception and throughout the rest of her earthly life. And do we see that fulfilled in the New Testament anywhere? Yeah, so we have indications where the New Testament authors seem to be drawing our attention to Mary being that woman. So, for example, at the wedding feast of Cana, when Jesus calls Mary woman, that's that's set against the backdrop of a new creation theme. We don't have time to go into those details but I articulate that, I think I do so in my book, Meeting the Protestant Response, where Jesus is calling Mary woman against the backdrop of the creation story. And given that Jesus is calling Mary woman in that, in that sort of narrative, 
we can conclude that Mary is the woman of Genesis 3.15 at the foot of the cross when Jesus is crushing the very head of the serpent. What does he call Mary? Woman. And of course, John and his revelation in Revelation 12, 1 through 5, he gives he he has the vision of the male child who, who is trying to be devoured by the red dragon, which John identifies as the serpent of Ob. So you have the serpent, you have the child, and guess what? John talks about the woman. And so who is that woman? The mother of the messianic king. It's Mary. So we have Mary identified as that woman of Genesis 3.15 in the Christian tradition within the New Testament. And with regard to Mary being uh, set in that enmity, it's hinted at, although not proved, in Luke one twenty eight, when the angel Gabriel says Mary is full of grace, kikari tomene, which suggests a past action of being put in grace, resulting in a permanent state of being in grace. It doesn't get us all the way back to Mary's Immaculate Conception, but it's at least hinting at it. Thank you very much. And um, again, if you would like to see more information on this, please check out his book, Meeting the Protestant Challenge, which is his first book, and Meeting the Protestant Response, which is his second book. And we have one dogma to go. So let's do that. Uh, this last dogma is on the assumption. And Protestants are yeah. quick to remark that Jesus ascended into heaven in power and glory. And so why would you Catholics say that Mary ascended into heaven? And doesn't that steal Christ's glory but did Mary ascend into heaven, or is there a difference between the assumption and the ascension? And is there any biblical evidence for this? Yeah, so a lot of things on the table there. So the first <laughs> thought is that uh, let's first distinguish between what we mean by ascension and assumption. Jesus's ascension involves Jesus going into heaven by his own power. So that's what's wrapped up in our belief in Jesus's ascension. Mary's bodily assumption is not that because we do not believe that Mary goes into heaven with her body by her own power. She goes into heaven with her body because of the power of Jesus. It's Jesus who is assuming her into heaven with her body. So that would be an essential difference between the ascension of Jesus and the bodily assumption of the Blessed Virgin. And with that distinction, we can see that Mary's bodily assumption no more takes away from Jesus's ascension than our own bodily resurrection or assumption at the end of time, when we're going to receive our bodies back and exist in a heavenly state with our resurrected bodies. The difference between Mary and us is that she gets her resurrected body immediately at the end of her earthly life. We have to wait until the end of time. That's a special privilege that was given to her that's not given to us in accordance with God's divine providence. So and Mary's bodily assumption. Go ahead. Can I interject something there? Uh, would you say that the assumption is a... And maybe you'll get back to this. Maybe I should have. But um, would you say that it's a consequence of the Immaculate Conception? Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but Mary never sinned. So could it be seen as a consequence of that? Well, that would assume that Mary did not die. Correct. That's not and I was going to ask you later yeah. about that. Yeah. 
But that's not a part of church teaching. The church is open to the question of whether Mary died or not. But of course, this raises the question, well, if we say she was immaculately conceived, does that necessitate that she not die? And of course, the answer is no. Jesus didn't have original sin, but yet he still died. It's possible for Mary to still have died in accord with God's divine providence for whatever rationale we want to offer there and still be free from sin, both original and personal. The bodily assumption is separate than whether Mary died or not. The bodily assumption only affirms that at the end of Mary's earthly life, whether that end involved death or not, Mary was taken up into heaven in her glorified body. That's the target, you might say, of the definition. That's 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 precisely what we're affirming. Assumed into heaven bodily with her glorified body, which is irrespective of whether she died or not. Okay. Sorry to interrupt your, your, no, your free-flowing no thought there. Um, so we believe that she was taken up body and soul into heaven after yeah. her death. Is there any biblical evidence for that? Why, why does, what evidence does the Catholic church have of that? Yeah. Well, there is one text that converges with this sacred tradition. So Mary's bodily assumption is primarily based on sacred tradition and the church giving us this dogma in light of sacred tradition. Now, there is scriptural text, at least one particular passage, that converges with this tradition and maps on with it, which at least can provide us some biblical justification for the dogma. It's not necessarily a proof text, but it's pretty darn close, and it converges with the tradition. So in Revelation 12, 1 through 5, I mentioned this already, Brian, that's where John has his vision, where he sees the woman clothed with the sun, the and the crown a crown of 12 stars upon her head and the moon underneath her feet and she gives birth to the male child to rule with a rod of iron the red dragon is there looking to devour the male child now as we already said we have good reason to think this woman is mary why well because john is mentioning four characters in total the woman the male child the serpent and michael the archangel if three of the four are referred to individual beings like St. Michael the Archangel, the devil, Jesus, well, then surely the fourth character, the woman, is going to refer to an individual as well. Who might that be? Well, John describes her as the mother of the Messiah. That's Mary. Third, secondly, John is clearly drawing a parallel between Revelation 12, 1 through 5, and Genesis 3.15. You have the serpent of old. You have the child, the male child, and you have the woman. Well, in Genesis 3.15, Christians recognize that that seed of the woman is Jesus, that the serpent is, the, is Satan. And so the mother of that Messiah in Genesis 3.15 is Mary. So it's a prof prophecy about Mary. And given that Revelation 12, 1 through 5 is connected to that first prophecy, then the woman in Revelation 12, 1 through 5 is going to be a reference to Mary. So we have strong indication here that this woman is Mary. What about the bodily assumption? Well, notice, Brian, how John describes her in bodily form. He describes her as seeing her head and her feet. 
Now, initially, you might think, well, big deal. This is the book of Revelation. Metaphors are used all the time. But contrast this description, Brian, with the souls of those slain for the testimony of Jesus in Revelation 6-9. When that seal is lifted, John sees souls under the altar crying out for God to enact vengeance upon their enemies on earth. And notice how he describes them there. He describes them as souls. Mm -hmm. He does not describe them in bodily form. But yet here, with regard to the woman, he does describe the woman in bodily form, which stands in stark contrast to his description of the souls in heaven in Revelation 6-9. And so that gives grounds to say that John is having a vision of Mary in heaven in bodily form. And of course, that revelation converges with what we know by way of sacred tradition that Mary was bodily assumed. Now, if I could follow up with one more question before we end, uh, I'm not sure how familiar you are with soul sleep, but there are a mm. minority of Christians today, Protestants today, who say that Mary's still in the grave. Nobody's resurrected yet. She's not resurrected yet. So how could she be in heaven? Well, that just begs the question against the Catholic who's, a who's giving argumentation for Mary's bodily assumption. To say that Mary has not been resurrected, yet is to say Mary has not been bodily assumed. But that's the very question that we're trying to consider here, right? Was Mary bodily assumed? So that particular response would beg the question, assuming in its conclusion what is, assuming in its premises what it's trying to prove, right? Assuming the conclusion is true in the premises. Now, with regard to soul sleep, Often that is posed to us as Catholics in our belief that the saints in heaven are aware of what's going on in our lives here on earth and interceding for us, etc. Well, in response to that, Brian, I would simply go back to where I was, Revelation 6-9. Notice there, the souls of those slain for the testimony of Jesus are conscious and aware that their enemies are still living on earth. And secondly, they're engaging in rational activity. They're asking God to bestow vengeance upon their enemies on earth. That is completely at odds with the idea of soul sleep. Now, it is true that without such biblical revelation, if we're just working on philosophy alone and our own kanagan and the nature of the human being and how we know things as rational animals— well, then it would follow from that, that once the soul departs from the body, then the soul of its own nature and power would be, quote unquote, in soul sleep, like wouldn't be engaging in the rational activity that it normally does in its human mode. But given the divine revelation of souls in heaven being aware and conscious of the, 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 the things that are happening here on earth and engaging in rational activity— by way of God's grace and power, we can dispel this notion of soul sleep. Absolutely. Great answer. And thank you for uh, conquering these and tackling these dogmas. And I uh, once again want to point people to your book. If you haven't uh, seen his books yet, there is Meeting the Protestant Challenge and Meeting the Protestant Response. And he has more books as well. But these specifically answer commonly 
asked objections. P objections you're going to hear all the time against the Catholic Church. So you can check those out at thecatholic.com. I'm sure there are other places too. But I want to thank you for coming on the show today and for uh, answering these for us. Brian, thanks for having me, man. It's always a pleasure and I look forward to the next time. It is a pleasure. And it's always a pleasure for all of you to jo uh, join us as well. Thank you all for joining us each and every week. Uh, praise God. And please keep praying for us. The work we do, so many people are coming home because of the work we do, because of that work that Catholic Answers does. So please keep us all in your prayers. Please check out Catholic Answers website, uh, Catholic.com. Uh, Catholic and please check out Carlo Broussard. I will link all of his information in the description section below. God bless you all.